Welcome to the Redacted Culture Cast. I hope that this is the episode that provides that kind of value that you can share with the people that you know. The place that we are at in the world right now is a decentralized but growing community. And the only way for that to work is if I provide enough value for you to share it with people that you value yourself. Now, the title of today is Brave New War. The reason why we have that title is because it is the title of a book that I have recently finished by John Robb. If you're a regular listener of the show, I have talked about him a little bit recently. So let's get down to business, like the famous Disney movie before they get all weird. Um, right now, we are running a pre-order on two sets of shirts. We all, Well, there's technically three in here, but fine. We've got our inverted version, which are the black print on white, and then we have our subdued, which is black print on black. That is a head nod or a, a hat tip to the idea of subdued imagery involved in military operations. The idea of something being subdued is it's sort of like if you know, you know. If you know what to look for, you can find it. Uh, it's also particularly visible under night vision so that's that's gonna if, if that's if that's your jam uh head over to redacted llc.com slash i think it's i think it's slash merch right now but it's our store and i really appreciate it because your pre-orders your orders and anything you pick up from that store is purely what keeps this show rolling so without further ado i've recently finished this book called brave new war by john robb and the reason why I would want to talk about it so quickly is because I would recommend reading it on the one hand, uh, and then I would also recommend uh, engaging with the ideas inside in both spoken and written format. In other words, buy the book, read it, talk about it. I would recommend it as far as, a, as one worth reading because it was published in 2007. A book being published in 2007 wouldn't normally go out of date so quickly, but there's a certain element of, jo of Rob's writing which didn't really keep up with the times. He didn't really make accurate predictions about, say, social media, but he did, on the other hand, present a really intriguing and valuable argument for us as citizens of America or just us as individuals. It doesn't necessarily fall within the category of philosophy, but the subject is a combination of talking about the changing economy and uh, format of the world's information exchange with things like the internet, as well as how guerrilla warfare is changing or ha was changing in 2007 to focus on decentralized Maybe even networks is too solid of a term, but decentralized efforts by um, using using Iraq as an example to attack economic targets to cause the most bang for your buck, so to speak. And so the beginning of the book almost feels like it's written. It's 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 uh, the beginning of the book almost feels like it's um it's out of time, like it fit. It's almost, it's almost even like a time capsule back to 2006, 2007, where many of us were quite young. And so it allows us to look back into just the recent history and have some sort of understanding of what the mindset of the world was just before we hit this social media revolution and uh, all of the chaos that ensued henceforth. 
But I think there's a, there's, there's a certain principle that should be addressed. Now, Rob is essentially arguing that decentralization is inevitable. I'm going to restate that because of how important it is. John Robb is effectively arguing that decentralization is inevitable. And while he's writing this in 2007, and he's saying that in order for the world to react to the... the and I'm sorry, in, for, in order for the world to become anti-fragile or robust against the decentralized form of terrorism, which is what I mean by decentralized terrorism is that there isn't any hierarchy that can be attacked, so to speak. There isn't any sort of network that can be dismantled directly because of the open source nature of information, technology, weaponry, uh, target descriptions, so long and so forth, that uh, also uh, that this, this concept, the open source access to information in conjunction with the asymmetrical fragility of the world that we live in. Let me go back to a full screen for those of you on YouTube. On the one hand, we have, on the one side of the argument, or the, not the argument, on the one, one factor that contributes to this situation is that the due to the internet, whether it's the light web or the dark web, however you want to talk about it, due to the internet, there is so much information available, and I'm going to use I'll use an example that's much more present and relevant to our day and age. As it stands in the United States, all of the people who are good at violence are willingly not participating in it. Let me be clear on that one. When we see violence in the streets, when we see violence in the schools, when we see violence done by, let's just say, individuals, they don't tend to be very good at it. And the amount of information on the capability of violence is actually quite vast in comparison to other times. There's, there's everything from instructional videos to educational videos to content like this, which is much more focused on the life of the mind and how we think about these things. But there is, um, I, have on the, I have on my shelf a... Um, I believe it's called it's Technical Manual 31, which is Unconventional Warfare Devices and Techniques References. This is available. All of this information is available to so many people. Um, but what ends up happening is while that information is available to people, we'll get, get to that later. While this information is so available to people, um, we don't we don't see a lot of people participating in it. We don't see it with the there isn't a direct correlation between access to information and action in the way that the accusers say so. Another example of this would be uh, what is it? America has more guns than people, but our proportion of gun violence really isn't nearly as big as what it's accused to be. Or in other words, the proportion of gun violence does not rise at the same rate or whatever you want to call it to. Um, to other countries, even though they're not nearly, even though they're much more homogenized, other countries are so much more homogenized. The combination of multiculturalism in the United States probably has more effect on the violence in the United States than literally anything else. But, you know, no one wants to admit that their holy cow might actually be the thing killing your country. Um, your sacred cow, my bad. Uh, but the point with that is that the, the access to, to even guns the access to guns um, is disproportionate to the type of violence that we see in the country. 
So this is the decentralization of information, though. Well, let's go back to this other side. You can, whether it's uh, something like this technical manual on unconventional warfare devices and techniques, uh, I've skimmed it. It looks like a pretty good read. Um, or or it's the access to open source information through the internet, through social media, through um, all of these like information or even intel um let's just call them opsec failures uh there's all these intel opsec failures that exist out there which jeopardize our safety in quotes um because of how easy it is to find information i think in some ways the population of the united states is well maybe that's i, I shouldn't go too far down that road so that's the one side of the argument is that you have the decent you have uh, open source information is 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 one one piece of information to take from Rob's book. The other part that he starts talking about, though, and I really don't know how well I think this was at the early stages of this form of um, uh, the, I think this was the early stages when maybe the West was becoming more conscious conscious of this type of warfare being sort of like economic warfare. Although there are certainly people who were aware of it before then, but this became a little bit more, let's just call it front and center, was this idea of economic warfare. And economic warfare can look like multiple things, but in the case of Iraq, how they're de de describing it is that a decentralized, not even network, but a decentralized set of guerrillas could use a very small of amount of resources to cause a very large cost of resource damage. Think of it this way: the expenses required to blue that the the expense the the cost of materials that it would take an insurgent in Iraq in 2007 to blow up a pipeline was something like 50 to 150 American dollars, but it would end up doing something in the millions of dollars of damage, uh, and that's a pretty good trade. If it costs me a hundred dollars to do a million dollars worth of damage, and I'm my my primary model is economic warfare, that's a super weapon. I was talking to a fellow recently who was addressing the idea of fentanyl in the United States. And although there's a certain political aspect, which probably should be addressed on moral grounds, uh, there is, although there's a certain political aspect to even the mention of the word fentanyl, he brought up a really interesting point. The cost of the precursor, this is, this is me quoting a person, so I, 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 my numbers will probably be off, but he said that the cost of the precursor chemicals to acquire that that is required to produce fentanyl, if they if the if you're or the the ratio is something like this, um, the precursor. If I spend three hundred and fifty dollars, three hundred and fifty U.S. dollars less than the cost of a PlayStation Five, I can produce up to twenty-five million dollars in profit or damage to the United States. Now, I know that's profit or damage is kind of a weird way of saying it, but there, what, I, what I'm trying to say and what, this, what, what I believe this guy was saying, this, this, this um, fellow in his field, uh, he was you know, in working or engaging in the world of economics and then he had a military background, so there was this sort of combination of things. But what he was talking about was that for the cost of 350 US dollars in precursor chemicals it is possible for an element you know the the gross summary of profits 
of those materials being sold in the United States in the form of fentanyl to reach about $25 million. So let's just say that that $25 million is just simply money extracted from the American economy. It's not exported, it's extracted. So $25 million is taken from Americans, give tw- across a distributed amount of people, give $25 million to individuals, and that profit ends up trickling up back towards a non-American organization. That doesn't even count the cost of the police officers, the hospitals, the lawyers, the medicine, the you know all and and all of these social infrastructure elements, the car crashes, the uh, funerals, the 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 just the grief, the alcohol abuse that comes from twenty five million dollars uh, that comes from that fentanyl being consumed in the United States. That would be an example of a very effective economic tool because on mul- our economic weapon, because on multiple accounts, let's, let's just say it's even let's let's just make the assumption that it's intentional um, because that's that that does need to be assumed or it needs to be understood. When I say it needs to be assumed is it, it, it is an assumption at this point in time, um, at least within my understanding. But let's just assume that it's intentional. Then I'm then I not only am I doing am I if I'm using this idea of fentanyl as a weapon, I'm doing twenty five million dollars worth of damage to your economy in addition to probably three times that in just the expenses and the civil infrastructure weight that's being put on your country. And that's for every three hundred and fifty dollars. That's a pretty strong weapon. So uh, going back to John Robb's book, we're talking about on the one hand, you have this decentralized, or you have open source information, whether it's open source like OSINT, O-S-I-N-T, which is open, sen- open source intelligence, or it's simply the internet's ability to find out things. The internet is never wrong, as the quote goes. That in conjunction with eco- this concept of economic warfare. And this concept of economic warfare, which is instead of engaging in the exchange of bullets and bombs against people so much, is it's destabilizing populations through damaging primarily economic factors. And, and, and as we were seeing in the example of Iraq in 2007, I know the way I pronounce Iraq, it might be a little odd to you. Uh, but Iraq in 2007 was to attack pipelines, and in America in 2023, one example might be the use of fentanyl. But there's another example that we've seen that makes some sense, and that is attacking substations or causing damage to the electrical grid, which put people in some form of back foot. They're standing on their back foot trying to recover, trying to even survive. Let's just say in the winter makes it even worse. And um, And both of these things contribute to what rob is arguing will be decentralization which will produce the need it'll produce a requirement for decentralization but he also is he's also approaching it and why i think it's worth reading is because he also uh, seems to be approaching it from a little bit of the position of the state not the level of the individual Rob is not arguing as a prepper for being a prepper. He's arguing, he seems to be arguing from the position of somebody with some relevance to the state, the United States as a whole. And I think that's actually a good perspective for us to engage with. Because too often when we think of decentralization, we very, very quickly 
turn our focus to things like having our own water source, building our own radios, or having you know, or or or, or the the survivability in some sort of pseudo apocalypse situation of the individual, whereas he's also approaching it from the level of the state. In a sense, it goes really, really well hand in hand with Nicholas Nassim Taleb's anti-fragile, and I believe he actually cites some of Taleb in here more in reference to uh, the Black Swan type events. But there is some value to be added in this book. There's some value to be gained from this book in regards to decentralization. So what does he say? Well, I, I think I need to read two certain lines, and I'm actually going to read them from the end of the book. And one of them goes like this. Regardless of whether or not we can muster the will to build decentralized resilience into our lives, it will arrive. In the near future, if we haven't made any moves towards decentralized security and resiliency, the system will break hard. Eventually and inevitably, there will be black swan events that directly affect the United States. The first casualties of these events will be the ultra-bureaucratic ultra U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which, despite its new extra-legal surveillance power, powers, will prove unable to isolate and diffuse the threats against us. This quote, I think, draws out something that can give you as an individual a sense of encouragement, but also help describe perhaps what we're starting to see in our country. I don't mean this to be purely a, you know, sort of, mm, I don't know how to say it. Uh, I don't mean it to be purely speculative, but what it does look like is what he is, what Rob is arguing in 2007 is that the burden placed on the state, on the federal government, will be quite great, such that because of the decentralized network of threats against it. Now we're we are more than let's see, it's that was two thousand. We are more than ten years later. We're looking at about fifteen years later after this book was written, and I think that we can come to some conclusions about where the trajectory has changed since Rob and where it might continue going. I'm going to posit a thesis. It's a hypothesis at this point in time. Is that the influence of decentralization through things like social media and the uh, through things like social media and global disruption of markets and events has caused the state, the government, the federal size of the government to focus more and more on control and centralization. In other words, let's use it as an example that's immediately relevant to us. The state, the federal government, is interested in cracking down on your individual right to own a rifle or a carbine or whatever you want to call it through the brace ruling because they believe that that is the best way to shore up a span of threats that they describe to their authority. The, the legitimacy of their authority being challenged, they are seeking to, they, they are required to either consent to the will of the governed or expand their authority and centralized power. 
And instead, in reaction to this negative effect where perhaps you were dealt a hand that was garbage from the start, instead of yielding that and reforming it into something that is useful for the world that we live in, they're choosing to further centralize in sort of a death spiral. An example of this will be 2020 in the Summer of Love, as well as state versus federal authority when it comes to law enforcement. We are existing in a time where there is a conflict in some ways between various states and federal authorities. This can come across in examples of like sanctuary states, whether they're whatever you want to, whatever sanctuary thing you're sanctuarying now is whether it's is it see, trans is that trans sanctuary state thing? Is somebody used coined that term yet? Well, you know, whatever the hell. Um, but you've got like gun, firearms, Second Amendment sanctuary, counties, cities, states. You've got uh, immigrant sanctuary, city, counties, cities, states. And so, what you when 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 a when a county, city, or state says that they're a blank sanctuary, what they're effectively saying is that the federal government has no power here. Uh, you know, think of Lord of the Rings quotes for me, please. But what this does, and why I think this is important, is because what John Robb was, was arguing in 2007 is that the federal government is not going to be able to handle decentralized threats from a centralized position. In fact, I think a decentralized threat is the specific evolution that comes from learning the mistakes uh, of trying to challenge a centralized authority. The, the reason why, or the one of the things that caused and produced this form of decentralization was the power of the state. They, they, since, there were, since challenges to the state could not come from anything other than a state of equivalent size, which, if you think about this in monopolies, would not want the 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 power that be would want to crush any sort of opposition before it grew to any substantial size. If you want to think about it this way, um, then instead of it being a single entity that's the opposition to the state, you would have a decentralized. And what I mean by decentralized is there is no one banner creed or argument. It is simply individuals choosing voluntarily to participate or abdicate, not abdicate, um, to, to withdraw from the system. We've talked about this a couple times before when it comes to socialism and communism, but we'll get into that in another time. But when it comes to this idea of decentralization, it's interesting that Rob will argue that from a law enforcement perspective or a, a D, an anti-terrorist perspective, whatever, anti-terrorism, uh, counter-terrorism perspective, he effectively argues in the latter, page, the latter pages of the book that... Um, that uh, it will that it has to come that it has to de that counterterrorism has to decentralize. That was a really really bad transition. Here's a here's a quote: The Department of Homeland. This is from pages 160 and 161. The Department of Homeland Security was excessively focused on prevention of terrorism through centralization before the conflict and on bureaucratic control of the deployment of assets during and after the crisis. Referencing to Hurricane Katrina as an example, um, or that's a good one. Yep. So the Department of Homeland Security was excessively focused on the prevention of terrorism through centralization before the conflict 
and on bureaucratic control of deployment of assets during and after the crisis. It is hard to see how this centralized system will produ produce anything other than disaster in the future. In other words, that the attempts of the centralizing power to become more bureaucratic and more authoritarian will only magnify the level of catastrophe that is, uh, that, that is as a result. You could make the argument that it, one example of that is the repeated railway and infrastructure failures that we've been observing in the recent, uh, the recent couple months. However, I still need to use a caveat there. I am not currently in a position to make a really good assessment on how out of the norm that is. And then, but what I can say is just because it, whether, whether it is or is not in the norm does not mean that it's acceptable. We do not, whether or not it's, we're experiencing the same amount of train derailments or we're experiencing more derailments than ever before does not mean that it is acceptable going forward. We should expect those that are supposedly appointed and or elected into those positions to do their damn jobs or find a new one. For whatever reason, we shouldn't just expect um, you know, the corrupt to, to, to stop being corrupt. Let's just be clear. But let's talk about decentralization, especially when it comes to security forces. When you look at security, and I mean this in the form of security, whether it's on a nation state or a single location, physical security in any meaningful way, one thing that we've observed in the world is that decentralization only improves your capabilities. But decentralization also requires something that it requires that the individual or the smallest unit of decentralization is competent and capable up to a certain level. You cannot have decentralization with in illiterate, incompetent people. You cannot achieve it because if people are dependent on each other and somebody, if we have interdependence, there is a weakest link problem which behooves you, military term, but behooves us as individuals to carry our weight and more. There's this quote within the Ranger Creed that has to go with, you know, I will, I will carry more than my responsibility. Or no, I will carry my weight and then some. Don't at me. Uh, you can't smoke me for not having every single line of it memorized 12 years later or 10 years later now. Holy shit. I almost cursed, but I think it's almost been 10 years to the day. Huh, whatever. So back to decentralization um, of security. Think of it this way. If your local sheriff who's elected, who's aware of the people, has the resources that allow him to integrate and participate and target, uh, uh, integrate, I'm sorry, has the resources at his disposal to deal with and affect change within his community in regards to terrorist and counter-terrorist scenarios. It's not that they need to be more armored and more individual, but more empowered and, and as a part of the community. The closer that that guy is to the community, in theory, the more able he is to address the threats of that scenario. Um, and and, this, keeps, and this, this, this does not scale. So, in other words... The argument that the federal government made with the idea of federal forms of law enforcement is that the states couldn't handle the magnitude of crime that was going on. You can see this as an example, perhaps, with the mafia. 
is that one of the reasons why we had to start standing up organizations that were federal level police stations could have had ulterior motives, and I'll I will grant that. But their 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 sort of stated purpose was that the states couldn't handle inter interstate level uh, crime act organized crime. But we don't live in those days anymore. We don't live in the same days as the mafia. And in some ways, the mafia was produced by the government, which is a little weird when you think about it, that we keep dealing with the problems that we create. And so, um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get back into that one. So the question, first of all, is does, does that exist? Does, do, is that the case anymore? And I think Rob is arguing no. I don't think that the, I don't, I think our Rob would effectively be arguing that the threat of some sort of mafia style um, crime network is much less of a threat in today's age. Rather, node operated, decentralized, terroristic threats, ergo Antifa, if you want to get political on this one, are, are going to be more dangerous, more, are the greater threat that we're facing today. And in a sense, the the you get this cyclical you get this cyclical issue, this this circular reasoning that goes into um, centralizing the authority of federal law enforcement, which says um, it, the the threat is rising, so we need to increase our security state. But the more that you increase your security state, the more that you entice and produce and in fact, I mean produce, like manufacture, the thing that is the threat. In other words, another example would be with the idea of gun control, is that the possession of arms is the closest thing to an absolutely decentralized network of security that you can, uh, you can acquire. The, I, don't think, I don't know if we'll ever get to see this, the, the, this happen in the world, but perhaps it is possible that uh, the United States will be... It's not the word justified. Um, there's a word that I'm looking for, which happens on this show. But the 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 the, the um, it's 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 like fulfilled. It's like when your when your idea that you've been arguing for gets proven to be correct in the end. Um, but perhaps one day there will be a day where all the nations of the world are being completely crushed by the collapse and breakdown of society, and the um, ever present, ever growing dangers of decentralized terroristic networks but the united states will be just fine because individuals like individuals still own their guns and decide to take responsibility for their communities vindicated that's the word maybe the united states will be vindicated someday we don't know not likely but it's possible that um the the ever evolving type of threats to the prevalence and growth of human life whatever you want to call it Will uh, the United States will be vindicated because they, by enshrining the right to bear arms in our society, we have effectively produced and codified a natural form of decentralized security into our system alone. And as a result, um, the things that cause other countries which have disarmed and enslaved their populations will not have the same effect on U.S. soil. I don't want to hope for that future. That would be kind of crass because it would require the presence of such things. But in in but in the other way, uh, but in on the other hand, it's effectively what we have in our world. 
So last quote from John Robb on page 185. Uh, Members of the middle class will follow, taking matters into their own hands by forming suburban collectives to share the cost of security, as they do now with education, and shore up delivery of critical services. These armored suburbs will deploy and maintain backup generators and communications links. They will be patrolled by civilian police auxiliaries that have received corporate training and boast their own state-of-the-art emergency response systems. That is a prediction made by Rob that I that only sort of only sort of came true in 2020. It wasn't the middle class in the suburbs that deployed these things. It was the upper middle class in the corporate. And that is the that is the the kind of the phrase that is the sentiment that I want to leave this episode on. It's interesting that John Robb is arguing that uh, that decentralization is inevitable, and he's making that argument in 2007. But what we've seen since then in regards to the United States is actually the opposite. The government has tried harder and harder to centralize further and further by using federal control to create constrict or to create constrictions on the United States people. Two really good examples of this are the Brace Ruling, which essentially puts the United the, the citizens of the United States in a state of jeopardy, whether it's because they can't have the things that they have used for self-defense or because it puts them in a position of assumed guilt by the government, which is much easier for them to justify tyranny by. Kind of gross. Or another example of this would be the hiring of uh, a great batch more of IRS agents or the increase of taxes or this new housing bill that is trying to essentially make the responsible pay for the actions of the res- irresponsible. Yeah, I know it sounds, that's a quick assumption of it. But what we're seeing here is that I think John Robb, I think this is a book worth reading and it's a book worth having on your shelf. Because what he is saying is he's saying that decentralization is inevitable. And if we're going to hold on to that thesis, I think what we're going to inquire, I think what the world is going to look like in 20 years, in 10 years, in 5, 10, 15, 20 years, is, and I think the trajectory that we're going to see as far as the United States is we're going to see a partition of powers in this country. What I mean by a partition of powers or a partition of culture is probably more important, probably more accurate. You're going to see a partition in culture in this, in this, in the United States between effectively the authoritarian centralized population and the decentralized underground. This is what I what I believe is going to happen is that you're going to see the United States bifurcate between a centralized population. I think you're going to see that the United States bifurcate. It's going to remain on a map almost identical. We're still going to have the same borders, many of the same states. I don't think we're going to see the balkanization in the way that the pundits are talking about. But what I think we're going to get is we're going to get a uh, we're going to get a bifurcation of the United States, and it's not going to be a left and right. It's not going to be purely a left and right bifurcation. What we're going to see is we're going to see that there is going to be the continued attempt for there's going to be the attempt a continued grasp for power 
from the authorities and the authoritarian top that uh, individuals like Joe Biden and individuals are, and organizations like the ATF and the IRS are going to try harder and harder and harder to hold on to some semblance of control. And they're, then, and, and they're going to feel that control slipping from their fingers because the world is going to move towards decentralization. It's going to do that through economics, and it's going to do that through technology, and it's going to do that through philosophy. That people are going to reject the authoritarian demands of whatever it is that is the, the cathedral. And they're going to start pursuing their they're going to start pursuing their own not not their own will but they're going to start pursuing uh self-reliance and localized communities by their own choice this is going to cause the government from the top to react negatively and they're going to view that as a legitimate threat to their authority because it is if i don't need the federal government to take care of me if i don't need daddy to pay my bills and uh, but and I try to figure out how to integrate into my community and I participate in my family and my church and I raise my children then I have no need for them which is a threat to the, their legitimacy the, but what you're also going to have is you're going to have simultaneously a sort of pseudo religious expansion in the United States that is not going to come in the form of a rote christianity but probably a bastardized combination of scientism and like the worst caricature of Catholicism that you've ever seen, because this is not a bash on Catholics. In fact, I think some of your theologians are of, are of great worthy of respect, this coming from a Reformed guy. Uh, but I think you're going to see a bastardization, a bastardized caricature of Catholicism combined with some sort of pseudo-scientism mixed with a little bit of New Age to create a brand new cathedral of paganism which is going to, not paganism, it's like this brand new cathedral kind of thing, um, which is going to represent the higher section, the higher partition. And I don't mean higher as in better, but sort of the public face of the world. You're going to see the world, part you're going to see the United States and the world partition between um, the decentralized real powers where people are making real moves. And then you're going to have above it the massive veneer not just like the 10 percent of the iceberg but the massive veneer of centralized normal economy which is going to um which is going to focus more and more and more on personalities like donald trump and joe biden and less and less on their own avenues of influence and as a result that will be the partition of the world between the true power the true the true we the people will be decentralized and will choose voluntarily to participate in community and then the people who follow along the lines of you know whatever you want to call it and i don't want it to be too derogatory because they all they all serve their purpose and this is not to call them sheep because that would be so insulting and wrong but rather i think you're going to see a focus on um you're going to see this focus on on this sort of centralized power biden save us government save us and those people are going to hold resentment against those who choose to take responsibility for themselves. But what it also looks like in application is that if you tend, if you attend a church, uh, now's the time to start considering what your security posture is going to look like, because that will certainly continue to be a target. It'll be seen as a threat to the legitimacy of the authority system, just like the church wasn't a threat to the legitimacy of the worship of Caesar back in the early era. 
And I don't think that just because you are being persecuted is evidence of the legitimacy of your faith or it is a legitimacy. I don't think the presence of persecution should be mistaken as a pure sign of the legitimacy of your conviction. It does, however, come to stand that if you are waiting for the government, the centralized government, to stand up some form of security posture in your immediate AO, your area of operations, where you live, where you work, where your children go to school, where you go to church, if you're expecting the government to do that, you will be long dead before they are capable of making a move. It's not whether or not they want to, it's simply that they are not possible because the centralized authority that is the government that is the federal form of law enforcement, is only capable of stopping a small percentage of decentralized threats that are being focused on you. And if you attend a church, then I think you could make a very strong uh, strategic argument for this that goes something like this. What we have seen from threats of people who desire to do harm on the church, that that information on them can be gathered from open source information or open source intelligence, their intent on attacking you is already decentralized. Their objective in attacking the church is present and decentralized in a way that they can sort of claim camaraderie, but also innocence in isolation from the attacking parties and the government, the federal government, and perhaps even in some sense, your state government will not be capable of predicting and reacting in time. The classic example of the school shooting is this. If the government was capable of predicting all of the school shooters, why are all of the people who go and do this kind of violence tend to be on some sort of watch list, have some sort of concern, or even worse so, um, fit... No, that's not the way of going it. Even worse so... Why are they? Why do? Why? Why is the government seemingly incapable of um, handling these threats? And I think that it is a moral failing to say to come to. I think it is a moral failing to jump to the conclusion that they want them to happen. I think that's a moral failing. Um, I think that the real answer is that a centralized federal authority cannot possibly react to such things. The reason why you have violence in the United States is because we have become ever more reliant on a centralized authority, a centralized form of law enforcement for these kinds of crimes or these kinds of uh, tragedies and travesties. We have become so reliant on them and simultaneously the, the we have become so reliant on them and, and the types of things that we are seeing, these types of uh, outbreaks of uh, massacres and violence, are specifically the kinds of things that that sort of centralized federal government cannot respond to. So yes, if you want to make it political, say that it's that that the idea of like centralizing gun control is not going to work, and you're absolutely correct. I believe that you're absolutely correct. But even then, why are you expecting them to be able to fix it in the first place? The tool can't do the job. Start looking elsewhere. Stop expecting the federal government to get their act together. Focus on your own community. Focus on your own church. If you have to start as small as your house, start at your house, expand to your community, and then and just grow from there. Let the decentralization of security happen regardless of what other people want because that's the only way going forward. That is the only way going forward. If that, At least that's the argument that's being made in Brave New War by John Robb. So if this, had, if this came across as a little bit of a rant, 
I don't apologize at all. Rather, <clears throat> I hope that this has been an episode that is edifying for you, that makes your life better. And if you believe so, I appreciate it greatly if you share it with your friends. If you head over to redactedllc.com, we are still running this pre-order on these new shirts. Well, actually, one's new, one's returning. Um, and when those are done, we'll be delivering them before summer. Hopefully, before, let's see. Yeah, before summer. So share the, sh share the show with your friends. I really do appreciate it. Um, that is the, if you want to talk about decentralized networks, we are present on Spotify. We're present on Apple. We're present on uh, you know Google Podcasts, YouTube, and Rumble. But the only way that we are actually growing is when people like you share them, share us. And our objective is not to establish the hierarchy. We're not here to be. Well, the joke could be the high priest of gun culture, but the goal and objective of Redacted is to equip you with the information you need to go forth into the world and conquer it to go out and live go I'm sorry to go out and live essentially your best life but that's that's kind of kind of cheesy let's let's just say the objective of redacted is to equip you with the intellectual tools necessary to your survival and thriving that being the case this has been the redacted culture cast for brave new war by john rob talk to you soon